Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry. The world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I need to let my hair down a little bit. I need to let loose. I'm going to take my tie off and I'm going to put on this turtleneck because I like this turtleneck. I look good in this turtleneck. It helps me move. You know, it helps you move, obviously. And he lets go. Yeah. Yeah. It's a secret power. It's a, it's a stretchable fabric. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's breathable. Hi, my name is Jamel Tillman, and I play Milchek on Severance. Hi, everybody, and welcome back. As always, to Off the Beat, I am your host, Brian Baumgartner, and oh, am I giddy today. I am, woo, I am very excited. Um, You should know this, that recently I have become obsessed with my new favorite show, Severance, on Apple TV+. Plus. Now, if you're not familiar with Severance, one, you should be, but two, it's about a tech company called Lumen that severs employees' work and home lives, essentially creating two versions of, well, one person. It's a very fascinating and interesting take on office life. And man, it goes places that you would never expect, which brings me to why I'm giddy. Today's guest, the amazing Tramel Tillman. Now he plays the super- Creepy, but somehow charming. Lumen supervisor Seth Milchek. His character is 
he has some of the most interesting scenes in the whole series. And I, I am not going to spoil too much today, but if you don't want to know anything about anything that happens in the show, maybe go watch it and then come back. And then you'll run back here to listen to this episode. We dive into Severance casting, filming some of those iconic scenes. Did anyone say M-D-E? And we discuss the optics and design of the show and so much more. We'll also get into Tramel's background and why he believes that art changes lives. It is my sincere pleasure to introduce to all of you my new bestie, Tramel Tillman. Bubble and squeak. I love it. Bubble and squeak, I know. Bubble and squeak, I cook it every morning Left over from the night before Tramel! Hello! What is happening, my friend? What's going on? <laughs> Life. I am so happy that you are here. I've come clean about something. I love this show so much. I cannot tell you how much. I was traveling and I finished the series and I'm like at 35,000 feet and I start firing off this missive email. I'm like, we got to get Tramel. I, I told <laughs> Wendy Malik, the genius Wendy Malik and John Hamm and some people that I've had the opportunity to work with before and know. And I told them, that I started this podcast because I wanted to talk to them. Like I wanted, I wanted to get really deep in terms of their process and their story and the, sure. and the moments that define them. But really it's, I wanted to talk to you. I didn't know it at the time, <laughs> but I love that. <laughs> but after, after seeing, after seeing severance, it was really about, about you. We're going to talk plenty about, severance, but I really wanted to learn a little bit about you and what sort of helped define you and in, in your earlier mm -hmm. life and, and in your career and how you sort of got to where you are today. I understand you grew up in, in Maryland. Is that right? I did. I did. I grew up in Largo, Maryland, um, which is in PG County. And okay. at the time in the eighties, it was one of the richest black counties in America. Okay. And I, there's still pockets of PG County that are, that hold a high population of black affluence in that area. Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a hop, skip, and a jump into D.C. From D.C. Okay. A lot of politicians there? Oh, yeah. Tons. I mean, I was probably neighbors with a few of them, you know? <laughs> it's okay. just like a stone throw away, you know? There's a sea of a lot of excellence, if you will in that community. I was neighbors with entrepreneurs and around uh, principals and teachers, educators, you know, alike. So everything was about growth, expansion, and excellence. Okay. When you were 10 years old, this is how the story goes, you were in a church Christmas production and you first got the bug about being an actor. Is that right? That's true. That's true. I was a very shy kid. Okay. And my mom recognized the uh, talent that I had of performing. And I would always perform by myself alone. She thought that it was very important for me to be involved in the church. 
because she grew up in the church, as did my father. Okay. There was an opportunity for her to be a part of a play. And she thought this was wonderful because there's so many characters in my family and we all like the spotlight in one way or the other, whether or not we admit it, right. you know? Um, <laughs> and with that, they needed someone to play her son and what better person to play her son than her son. Than her actual so, son. Right. Exactly. You know, <laughs> I was kicking and screaming, you know, I, Brian, I, I did not want to do it. I cried. I boohooed. But um, there was no way around it. Can't tell mom no, especially right. at the age of 10. And I got on that stage and I had one line and one direction, say hello and sit on the couch. And from that moment, it clicked. Really? I didn't know what this thing was that, that got me, but it did right then in the moment. And I wanted to do more of it. So then did you start auditioning for plays? You started doing plays as a, as a young person? I continued within the church. Okay. I got my start in the church doing a lot of theater and eventually, you know, veering out and doing professional served as an extra on the wire. Yes, I You remember that show? Well, I, I well, yes, I remember that show. It's one of the <laughs> one of the greatest shows of all time. How old were you when that happened? 14. 14. 15. Yeah, I was about that age. I was about that age. I sat probably two rows behind Wendell Pierce. It was a scene at a baseball game, you know, Wendell Pierce, and I cannot remember the other actor he was sitting next to, but they were having a conversation. And I was thinking, I'm sitting a couple rows behind Wendell Pierce. Wow. I said, this is really cool. And tried not to steal focus from, <laughs> from right. the actors who were doing their work. You know? Yeah, it's amazing how quickly you you're no longer sitting two rows behind Wendell Pierce if you cause a, if you're a distraction. Right. <laughs> I mean, right? Yeah. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. Now, I read you you ended up going to Xavier University there in Louisiana. Mm -hmm. You were there mm -hmm. when Hurricane Katrina decimated the city, which I want to talk about, but you were studying to become an orthopedic surgeon. Is this is this is this right? Yes, that is correct. That's correct. So at this point, you had given up, or at least temporarily put on hold, your desire to be an actor, and you wanted to be a smarty pants. Basically, so that, I did. That's I what wanted happened. to be a smarty yeah. pants. Yeah. Well, the thing was, I was told at a young age that I would never make it. You know, they said that only two percent of actors or people aspiring to become actors have a thriving career in it. And I didn't want to wait tables for the rest of my life. That's what I was told. I was encouraged to find a career that would foster a steady financial lifestyle. So I was told that I should get into computers, into business, law, or medicine. I enjoyed science. I thought it was really cool. I love the idea of helping people. So that was the route that I figured I would go in. And I was around so many doctors, especially black doctors, and they were always the, the pinnacle of success in the community. So that was the route I wanted to go in, or so I thought. Right. But what was interesting, Brian, is that performing was always there. You know, even when I was in high school, I was still performing. When I was at Xavier University, I got sucked into doing a musical, a random musical, like for a play at Xavier University. I, I still very much loved it, but 
I knew that it wasn't something that was going to feed me financially. And I was scared to walk into it. Right. So I said, you know, being a doctor isn't so bad. It could, you know. Right. It's, it's not like it's hard, right? So <laughs> it's, hard. it's fine. That's the easiest path you could take, right? Like what? It's no problem. Totally. It's no funny. Problem. My dad was a doctor. And so for me, it was the reverse. I was like, yeah, that seems like a lot of school. I don't know. That seems like, mm. that seems like a lot of school. And I did not yeah. have the interest in science. It, it sounds like you did. So yeah, I, mm-hmm. I decided pretty young that, that that was not for me. So explain to me what happened. So the hurricane hit, did Xavier shut down or did you decide you needed to get out of there or, or what happened? So, okay, we got to back up. So there's okay. a whole meaty story within that. So while okay. I was at Xavier University, I was studying biology pre-med. I was doing better in biology pre-med than many of my colleagues who are doctors now. That's right. right. That's it's wild. But I hated chemistry lab. I had a chem lab and I hated it. I did not want to do this. And the best thing about chem lab was the fact that I could watch the colors change. Okay. So... From there, I had decided that there's there's got to be something else that I can do. But then I remembered in high school, I was very involved in like doing social events. So I figured, okay, publicity. So I changed my major into mass communications. Okay. So I would figure that I would get into advertising and publicity and so forth and so forth and so on. Unfortunately, we hit a financial snag. My mom had gave me a phone call and said, I can no longer help you financially with college because we lost our home. Wow. Our home was foreclosed. Basically, we lost everything. With that, I had to find a way to finance school. Xavier University, while it's a wonderful university, was just so out of my pocket because it's a private Catholic school, you know. So my mom suggested, along with my sister, who was in Mississippi, Jackson, Mississippi, to go to Jackson State because they have a communications program you could be a part of. And it's cheaper. Right. I was hesitant about that. I wanted to go to Howard University. I got accepted into Howard University, but I didn't get a big enough scholarship to go to Howard University. Okay. So right before Katrina hit, I said, you know, I'll go to Jackson State. I'll give it a year, but then I'm going to come back to Xavier because I really love it there. Okay. So I ended up going to Jackson State. Hurricane Katrina came along and it not only hit Xavier, not only hit New Orleans, but it came up to Jackson, Mississippi. Sure, absolutely. So it was almost like the storm just followed me right on up, you know? <laughs> and <laughs> that's not funny. I don't know why so, I laughed at that. I don't it was the funny. image. It was but the image ironic. that I laughed at. Yeah. Yes. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it 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 was devastating, it was also incredibly ironic. And what was interesting is that while I was at Jackson State, there were some students that came up to Jackson State from Xavier to continue their education because they were offering those kind of programs across Xavier students. There were almost um, sister schools that were set up. You know, okay. there were people who went to Brown, Harvard, you know, Howard and the like. So I had friends from Xavier that were experiencing Jackson State along with me. Right. Which made it a great time. And I ended up falling in love with Jackson State and have such an appreciation for the school and the education, the environment there. Yeah. And you graduated from there. I did. I graduated summa cum laude, Jackson State go. University. See, there's the yeah. smarty pants yeah. thing again. I knew it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So you you graduate from Jackson State with your mass communications degree, and then what? You decide that maybe you're not done with acting. 
No, it's still there. The acting bug is, yeah. is still around. And while I was while I was at Jackson State, I was connected to the head of the acting department, uh, Dr. Mark G. Henderson. And I remember while I was doing a speech competition with my fraternity, he came along and helped me with the speech competition, ended up winning the competition um, under his tutelage. And he asked me, why are you not part of the drama program here at Jackson State? And at that time, Brian, because I believed in getting heavily involved, that was my upbringing, get involved as much as you can. I was in SGA. I was part of the Alpha Fraternity Incorporated uh, organization. I was part of the Kids College Freedom School Project. So I was working with kids. I also had part-time jobs. I had so much going on. I didn't have time to do any acting. And I was involved in the church at Jackson, Mississippi, New Horizon Church. You know, I don't have time. But when I graduated, I got offered a job working with Kids College Freedom School Project. And as wonderful as those kids were, I hated being there. And I hated being there because I wasn't doing what I love to do. And what I love to do was perform, right? tell stories, act, sing, dance, right? So I remember having a conversation with Dr. Mark G. Henderson, and he sat me down and he said, Tramel, you don't look happy. Are you happy? I said, no. Why are you not happy? He asked me. And he said, if I had to wager a guess, I don't think that you are doing the thing that you love to do. You light up when it comes to performing. And I said, well, I can't do this. I'm not going to have the money for this. I'm not going to have this. I'm not talented enough. I don't, you know, all of these excuses. And then he said, are you done? And I said, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Go do the thing that you love to do. Go do the thing that you love to do. And everything else will fall into place. And he encouraged me to go to grad school. And in order to get in grad school, you have to audition, right? Right. So then in order to audition, I was a part of URDAS, which is the United Residence Theater Association casting call for graduate schools. So I auditioned for that in Chicago, ended up getting a lot of attention from the grad school programs there, got the attention from the University of Iowa, received a full scholarship to go to the University of Iowa. At the last minute, Brian, when I was supposed to get on the plane to leave or get in the car and leave, I don't even know how I was going to get to Iowa. The financial portion fell through and it wasn't from the institution. What it was, it was for me. All of a sudden, like all the money was gone. Right. I called the head of the, the program at the University of Iowa and I said, listen, this is my situation. He said, we've, gave, we've given you all the money we can give you. I don't know how we can help you. He asked me, he said, Tramel, are you coming? And I said, I don't know how to get there. He said, well, I have to resend the offer. So after the entire church community <laughs> congratulated me on oh. leaving to go to the University of Iowa, <laughs> I ended up not going to the University of Iowa and just stayed in Jackson, Mississippi and worked and worked and worked until I could have enough money to get out of Jackson, Mississippi to go pursue my dreams on another level. But it gave me an opportunity, Brian, because with that, I was able to work with New Stage Theater to get some regional theater credits. I was able to work with JV Productions, and they offered me more training and more uh, legs to grow and fine-tune my craft. Yeah, experience. Experience, yes. Yeah, and how long were you there? How, how long did you end up then staying in Jackson? I got there 2005, and I left in 2011. And you went to Tennessee. Yeah. And I went to Tennessee. And I went to Tennessee... Because the head of acting there saw me at Erda's in 2009 and thought I was too green, which he was right. (laughs) I didn't want to admit it at the time, but he was right. He reached out to me 
early 2011 and said, hey, we may, I don't know if you remember me from the University of Tennessee, but we may have a slot for you. I said, hey, okay, let's go. I'm, I'm, this is my opportunity. It's my ticket to move on and get, and get some grad school training. Two weeks go by, I didn't hear from him. He then reaches out and says to me, oh, I'm sorry, the position has been filled. We don't have a slot for you. Oh. So I'm devastated. So then I, get, I put myself on this plan, Brian. I said, this is what I'm going to do. I am going to save up money and I'm going to put myself on a little tour. I'm going to go to New York. I'm going to go to Atlanta. I'm going to go to New Orleans and I'm going to submit my resume and just see what happens. So I'm saving. I'm taking jobs after jobs after jobs after jobs. And would you believe June of 2011, who calls me? The head of acting at the University of Tennessee. <laughs> and he says to me, hi, I don't know if you remember me, <laughs> but I'm the head of acting at the University of Tennessee. <laughs> I've been thinking about you for six months. What do you mean if I remember you? <laughs> and he said, he said, listen, I know I kind of pulled your leg earlier, but I'm serious. We do have a slot. You would start in the fall of 2011. If you're interested, come on up to Tennessee and let's go from there. And audition and let's go from there. Yeah. So I said, you know what? Let's give it a shot. And in July, I went up there and I auditioned and they offered me a slot right then on the spot. That's awesome. Bean Dad. The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. 
And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What did grad school give to you? I would say confidence. I would say the development of a thick skin because my graduate program was connected to the Clarence Brown Theater. So it's a regional theater. And part of their mission is to connect students with professional artists. So we had the opportunity to work with professional artists all across the country and work with directors, artisans, producers, so forth and so on. And with that, it taught me how to prepare myself in the rehearsal room, how to conduct myself backstage, how to treat my fellow cast members, how to speak to a director. Uh, Grad school gave me a plethora of tools to add to my arsenal, the toolbox. Speaking of severance, a lot of what I learned in grad school, I utilized in crafting this role, in crafting Milchek. That's awesome. Um, So I'm, I'm sure UT is really... Glad to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I've talked about this before, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hammer the point. But I think that what you're talking about, so many people don't get. And you're speaking specifically about the theater, but obviously it applies to film and television as well. Is that experience, that confidence, that knowing how to behave in certain situations, that just breeds confidence with the people, other people that you're working for or working with, showing up on time, knowing how to behave, what your job is, and what the specific process is. You know, for a variety of directors, I think that experience, you, you can't say enough about, about that. Oh, yeah. It, it strengthens you. Like you're going, like you're leading with everyone is not the same. Everyone, every process 
is different. You know, I've been on a few sets now and every director operates very differently. And yeah. being able to manage different energies and 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 different egos, if you will, and different yeah. projects within that is 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 crucial. Yeah. I have an old friend, I'm not going to mention his name in case he would get embarrassed, but he called me, he had gotten a cameo in a movie, had a, a few scenes, and he said, uh, do you have any tricks for memorizing lines? I mean, this is not an actor. And I said, well, first of all, you need to know this, that you're going to know every single word and you're going to show up and they're going to tell you where to stand and how to move and the camera is going to be there and you're going to have 14 people staring at you behind that camera. And you're not going to remember. So as well as you think you know the words, you don't. You don't. I gave him a couple of tricks. I don't even know if it worked out. But but yeah, that that is is so difficult. Um, you you graduate from Tennessee. Where do you decide your home should be? Well, I haven't decided where my home should be at that time. But I do go to New York. Okay. <laughs> okay. I do Fair. go to New York because at that time I I didn't know what I should do. You know, uh, the program did not have a lot of connections in LA. We, you know, so our showcase was in New York. Right. And the head of acting, Jed Diamond at the University of Tennessee, suggested that I go to New York. He's like, "Listen, go to New York. Give it five years. If you don't like it, you can leave." Five years is a hell of a long time to be in a place <laughs> that you are nervous to be in. I was terrified about going to New York. Yeah. I didn't want to have 17 roommates in a shoebox apartment eating ramen noodles every night. I was like, yeah. I just did not want to do that because that was what I was told would happen as an actor if you go to New York. But when I went to Showcase and I had a couple of days to just absorb the city and watch people navigate these spaces, and realize that these people are the same age as me or younger than me, and they're doing fine. I said, "Oh, well, I could do this. Okay. I can make this happen. Like, let's go." You know, <laughs> and it worked out. It was one of the best decisions I ever made. Nice. By the way, I I couldn't do it. I I, I found other places <laughs> to go. I always would go to New York when I had a job. But yeah, that that image for me as well. I I couldn't get over it. I couldn't get over it. So I'm, I'm yeah. certainly glad you did. I mean, it's not for everybody. No. Um, you make your Broadway debut <laughs> in 2019 yep. in the great society yeah. starring. Well, I don't know if living legend is <laughs> too much, but certainly an American and European gem, Brian Cox. Yes. Tell me about that experience yes. of landing that role and working with him. I was floored to be a part of this production, was an absolute fan of his, especially with Succession. I was a little terrified <laughs> because he he holds, he does not hold back uh, in Succession. Uh, yeah. But he's a, he's a delight. He's a teddy bear. He's just the sweetest, yeah. genuine man uh, that I had the pleasure of working with. And so brave. I think this project, we put it up in maybe about three weeks. Brian was committed to being off book. They were suggesting like maybe he should be on book for to play LBJ, but he said, no, I want to be completely off book. So he took the charge and he was an absolute inspiration for me. And uh, it was a wonderful uh, trying production in the, in the context 
of the story that was being told. You know, it was a companion piece to All the Way, to Robert Schenken's All the Way. And that piece ends in triumph, whereas the great society ends in tragedy. And what we were watching on stage or what the story we were telling on stage mirrored what was happening in the world in 2019. So it was hard to take in and it was hard to live in as well. But the cast was wonderful. Yeah. They were wonderful. Well, I don't know if you are aware of this. This would have been when you were in school, but about being off book. I had the opportunity to do the American premiere of a Connor McPherson play called Rum and Vodka. Mm. I loved it. It was one of the best experiences of my life. He had the world premiere, I'm pretty sure. It ended up starting in London and came here of another Connor McPherson one-man show, which was genius, if you don't know it, and even longer. I think it's a full two hours. So doing a scripted play for two hours and you're the only one on mm. stage, he, learning lines must not be tough for him, <laughs> I guess. I guess that's the lesson. Don't don't get in a, a learning line contest with no. Brian Cox. I you think don't want it's, that heat. <laughs> no, you don't. You don't you don't want that heat at all. So you're working at this point, you're doing other productions, and you start doing some stuff in film and television. Now, how was that transition for you? You know, mostly, if not exclusively, a, a theater actor, theater trained actor, and transitioning and beginning to work in film and television. How how was that transition for you? And it was that something that you knew that you wanted to do or yeah talk to me a little bit about that it took a different set of skills for film and television because i hadn't had a lot of experience with that my experience was the theater and although i remember watching a lot of television probably too much television and film uh and reenacting the scenes that i would see there did you do that oh god yes oh my god me and my best friend in Largo, Maryland, we would reenact scenes all the time. That's fascinating. All the time in our neighborhood. I will just share this with you. Greg Daniels, who is the mm -hmm. creator of The Office, he told me a story about, uh, as a writer, doing sort of the same thing, except he would transcribe the words. He would write down the scripted wow. words in television Sort of like what you're talking about for you to begin to hear the rhythms and, and acting these things out. He would do it so that he could see the structure and begin to study the structure of how scenes were put together, how episodes were put together. So I find that very interesting. Sorry to interrupt you, but. No, 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 no. That, that's fantastic. That's that's amazing. I thought we were just being kids. Right. But little. Well, that too. <laughs> did I know? That too. You know, yeah. we're like, but it, it was also specific scenes. I remember we would, me and my friend, we would reenact Bad Boys. Okay. Remember that scene where Martin Lawrence is about to get run over and Will Smith comes in the middle of the street and picks him up and takes him off to the other side. And he says, okay. don't ever say that I wasn't there for you. I, we would reenact that scene constantly. <laughs> and I, and, and if anyone is listening, Please don't do what we did because we would actually wait till the traffic came up the hill and then try to do it. Oh, <laughs> we no. like, we no. would do it with live cars. Oh, okay. No, that's not what no. God. <laughs> don't do don't follow my example. Please do oh. not follow my <laughs> No, <example>. please. <laughs> yeah, that was a game that I used to play, and it was one time I got hit by a car, but that's another story. But oh, God. 
So don't do don't do what I did. Don't do that. Um, yeah, don't do that. What was the question? I'm sorry, I got off topic. We- <laughs> so yeah, no, it's okay. Uh, I I took us off the rails. I'm sure. You know, you had so much experience at this point. Yeah. Mirroring, quite frankly, again, my experience of theater. And then you begin to transition into film and television. And just talking about that transition, oh, yeah. did you get an agent? Did you start working? How was that for you at that time? So when I moved to New York in 2014, uh, while we were doing a showcase, I got the attention of an agent who I'm still with now, uh, Jenna Winnett of Bowles Winnett Agency. Yeah, love Jenna, love the team there. And continue doing theater because that was my wheelhouse. Sure. But always wanted to dip my toe into television. And the only way to get into it or the only way to get good at it is you have to get into it. And then, you know, it's kind of like this wheel around, you know, like, mm-hmm. you, you know, they only want to hire you unless you got the credit, but you know, to get credit, you got to work, yeah. and that kind of thing. So, <clears throat> but I was able to do a small part in Difficult People where I was the Good Samaritan uh, and that was fun. And then did Diet Land and Hunters. And so with that, because I didn't have the training in television and film, I used my future colleagues, because I didn't know them at the time, as basically masterclasses. I would study people on screen. I would watch television, film, and just watch how they move their eyes, how they speak, how they hold their head, their intonation, everything, and use that as my class when I couldn't afford to go to these three, $400 classes with some of these top casting directors and acting teachers, you know, and being on set, having the experience, it, you know, I was able to get stronger and more confident and understand how to translate ideas and emotions on screen that may or may not work on stage because they're different mediums, right? Right. Your audience in theater may be 300, whereas your audience on film may be one. Right. So you have to kind of translate. It's it's all learning. It was all learning for me. How did you find out about Severance? Was this an audition that came in from your agent? Oh my gosh, Brian. So I was doing The Great Society 2019, right? Yep. We had just got wind that we were going to close. We closed early, unfortunately. And I remember going in and auditioning for this piece. And I had no idea what this was. All I knew is that Ben Stiller was directing. And I said, okay, sure, why not? Let's give it a shot. I went in and auditioned for it. Fine. Didn't really hear back. Right. Probably about two weeks later. I, I think it was right before the holidays, I hear that they that I've been selected for a callback to meet with Ben Stiller and Dan Erickson, okay. the writer and creator. Yep, creator. So January comes around. I'm getting ready to go to my callback audition. And I am running like hell to get there on time. I I get on the bus. The bus is running late. The Google Maps tells me that I should wait for another bus, but I don't have time to wait for another bus. So I'm running down through this industrial neighborhood of the Bronx. There's people 
driving with old refrigerators on carts, passing me, looking at me like I'm crazy because I have this full suit on and I'm sweating. You know, I turn the corner and there's these group of guys. One guy looks at me and say, hey, you want to see me kick this dude's ass? And I was like, OK, maybe later when I come back and they laugh <laughs> and then I'm across a bridge, running across this bridge, like trying to get there. I get to the lot. The audition happens to be on the other side of the lot, which is an acre long. So I'm running down <laughs> to get down to the other side of the studio. And I oh. finally get there. And it turns out they were running late. So okay. no one right. knew that I was late. So it was fine. And I remember doing the audition and making Ben laugh. And I said, that has to be a good sign. I made Ben still <laughs> laugh. That is huge. <laughs> this is huge. And and he told me that they have to do auditions in LA. Um, so they'll see what happens. And then I don't hear anything for a while. I hear nothing. And eventually Rachel Tenner calls my manager, Tigran, and says, Oh, you know Tramel got the role, right? <laughs> Like, wait, what? Like, just like one off. Just like, yeah, you know, he got it. You know, he booked it, right? Yeah, he's great. You know, he's great. He's great. Yeah, he got it. And then Tigran calls me, and I'm like jumping up and down, running around in the apartment. Like, I booked it. I booked it. I booked it. (laughs) And then the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah, that's so. By the way, Rachel Tenner, shout out to Rachel Tenner, who's one of the best. Yes, fantastic. So, how much of severance before you started filming how many episodes were you able to see was it just the first one like normal or we or did you know the journey i guess that's a better question how much of his journey did you know before you started filming well so this is what's really interesting because we started right before the pandemic so it was like 2020 and i remember after a fitting getting the note that we were shutting down for two weeks. And in the back of my mind, I said, this is no way it's going to be two weeks. There's no way it's going to be two weeks. Right. Then what, six months later, right. uh, we pick back up. I start in October. So by that time, I got the script and I started to understand the premise of the show and what was happening and you know, so forth and so on. What was interesting for me or what was really key was really trying to figure out who the hell is Milchek yeah. in the midst of all of this? Yeah, you know, and how does he fit into this world, and what is he gaining from this? Yeah, and you know, what is his motivations behind it? So th- that was my homework to kind of really build a character that makes sense in this world, right? You know, in a world that doesn't make sense, right? Yes, though it makes so much sense to me. But yeah, I, so right. All right, so let me ask you this specifically: Do how much did Dan or and or Ben share with you about where your character was going, or did you just more talk about just that first episode at that time? There was definitely a conversation between Ben, Dan, and I. They did not fill me in <laughs> about where he's going. Okay, it was more. It felt more like improv. <laughs> so. What was helpful for me was understanding where he came from. Okay. That was a process in a discussion between myself and Dan and Ben. Like I had my own backstory and then they had a backstory and then we kind of, you know, conferred about that. And then we went from there, which was really fun and how interesting our backstories were very similar. 
Okay. And reading it was just, you really just kind of, you played what was on the page. Now, this was also an exercise where the character, Milchek, knew more than Tramiel. Yes. Right? That's right. Tramiel has no idea what the goats are about. Yes. Where Miss Casey is going, I have no idea. <laughs> but Milchek knows. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. You know, so it's like all of these things that, you know, you really have to just dive in and make a choice as to what does Milchek know and what does he not know. Right. Which makes it fun. It's so fun. And I think you said something that is what I was really thinking about the second time watching it through, which is, is your brilliance in the show is you are always in the moment and Mm -hmm. whatever your specific job is, you are fully committed to that in the moment. And that's, what's so disarming about it. Because nobody is that way. Like, right? In real life, you're always... No, but I'm serious. Like, you're always guarded or putting on a facade or... And not that Milchek Mm -hmm. may not be putting on a facade. I wrote this down. There is an efficiency to you. There Mm -hmm. is empathy. You, You are empathetic and caring at times. And you're also a psychopath, like all three things simultaneously, (laughs) at least within most episodes, you can do those things. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking it's like, I'll be honest, I couldn't think of the third part, but it is in a weird way. And I started thinking like, is this why I'm responding so strongly to him? You Mm -hmm. are in a way part Dwight Schrute. Like Mm -hmm. there is a, there is a commitment to the job maybe better than like a, a job efficient Dwight Schrute slash prison guard, because I'm fascinated by, I'm sorry, just the mind fuck of the situation where you are dealing with people who have the same intelligence, the same general Mm -hmm. knowledge that they should have, but they have no history except the history with you. And you're like, all of their mommies and daddies rolled into one in a way, right? I mean, you know, you are introducing them and guiding them through this new world. It's fascinating the way that everyone responds to you throughout the journey of the show and how you interact with them. And I think that what you said is so key is that you are in the moment, always in the moment Mm -hmm. and performing the job that you have. Absolutely. Were you ever surprised about his journey as you continued? Were you ever like, wait, that's what it was later on? (laughs) Um, I'm trying to remember what it was like when I first got the script versus like the first episode, I was absolutely intrigued. And as an actor, you know, we do our part to fill in the blanks, right? Because we want to create these full dimensional beings, right? Because that's what makes it fun to play and also fun to watch. Yes. But as these ideas that I had or these thoughts or ways about Milchek, they all kind of faded away as I stepped through, as I continued to go through the season. You know, the, the, the music dance experience yeah, we're going to talk about the music dance experience in a second. <laughs> don't, don't, don't jump that. No, you're okay, not jumping that. I'll leave that. I'll leave that. But the, 
There's references mm-hmm. to the break room. Adam Scott's character is sent to the break room, takes over for Heli, yeah. you know, yeah. at, at one moment. And so you see this room, but you don't know what happens in there. So until you got the script for what happens in the break room, you didn't know. No. No. Because the break room scene didn't materialize until episode, was it episode three into four? I believe. That's right. That's that's exactly that's yeah. exactly what. It so is. if you're reading episode one and two, I believe there is made mention of the break room. There is or made mention of Mister Milchek is not as nice. He can, you know, he's not yes nice all the time. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So I was like, there's those clues that pop up, but oh, we don't know how real it is yes. <laughs> until the the dam opens and then you see it. You know. You know, it's occurring to me, like I'm sounding like a rube who's never worked in television before, thinking that you had all the scripts before you started. I am well aware that that's not normally how it works. The world here, though, is so fascinating and confusing. It makes me even more impressed with your performance that you were not aware of everything, at least, that was going to come in the future. I say empathy which some people could argue with if they've seen the show, because I feel like, you know, unlike uh, Cobell, played by uh, the genius Patricia Arquette, who is in my favorite underrated, I always call it my favorite underrated movie of all time, True Romance. Cobell is not nice. There is not anything nice or (laughs) sympathetic about her, including, um, without giving any spoilers away, how she behaves in the Audi world, as we call it. But I find mm-hmm. I find a humanity within you at times that is that's heartbreaking for me, and I think mm-hmm. uh, makes it even more terrifying. I want to ask you this: How many Whoa. employees <laughs> do you think are <laughs> severed at Lumen? Oh my gosh, you're going to get me in trouble. No, <laughs> no, like how how many do you think there are? It's so hard for me to answer that question because. This world is so unexpected, and so I you, think wait a minute. So you know, but you can't tell. Is that what you're saying? I can't even answer that. Like it's okay. <laughs> it's like you know, it's like it's it's so bizarre. I, I will say, I will say, and this is what I've actually loved about reading, listening, and experiencing people's theories of this show. Usually, whatever we think is happening is not happening. Yeah, that's a bullshit answer. That's what that, I experienced. Listen, that's a bull. Don't you can't bullshit <laughs> answer me. It's true. I'm not a reporter. I'm not a reporter <laughs> that you can give a bullshit answer to. I, listen, if anyone understands, I can't answer that question. I'll accept that. <laughs> let, let, let me let me let me ask this in another way. And I'm trying to think about things that Cobell said. Like, do you think that this is your group? Because you're around a lot. But again, who knows? You're right. Maybe you've got. 75 people you're dealing with you're sure you sure spend a lot of time with macro data refinement well you also got to remember you also got to remember this ond no of course no no no. of course i know there's not just four i apologize yes of course but it doesn't seem like you are with them in the same way though maybe you are i don't know i mean it's it can be misleading because we only focus on mdr you know what i mean no right and there, uh, there's a lot of time they're working that we don't see. 
By the way, I was involved for 10 right. years in a television show where we saw us do work exactly 0% of the time. So I get, <laughs> I get that. <laughs> like, when was paper actually sold? I'm not sure. <laughs> like, we only see the moments in severance where they're not actually taking the numbers. Right. All right. I'll bail on that. MDE, the music dance experience, uh, the most talked about scene look at you right now he's dancing right in front of me in a similarly creepy way than he danced is that your go-to are those your go-to moves or were they improvised in the moment it was totally improvised so that means that was your those are your go-to moves i don't I, those are milchek's go-to moves mm. like, i don't you know that's not okay. that's not my swag you know what i'm okay. saying i'm more of a hip guy <laughs> yes, this was more of a this region. was more of a shoulder chicken. I was yes. thinking it's a little chickeny. <laughs> but someone you have yeah. you have seen him behave in such a horrifying and that is what is is unsettling about your performance and in in some regards the show, you have seen him behave mm -hmm. in such an unsettling way toward these people yeah. and yet in this moment everyone has 5 minutes to just dance and have fun. Yeah. A little frivolity goes a long way. I, I want to ask you about the turtleneck that suddenly appears. Is that is that Milchek's relaxed look? You know, I, I think the music dance experience brings a different flavor. So he wants to, you know, dress it down a little bit. Like, you also got to remember, like, dude, yes, Milchek has been doing some very questionable things and, and amoral things, but he's under a lot of pressure too. You know, things went south once Heli came along and Petey disappeared. Yes. And he's had to kind of, he's had to basically fix it. He had to be the fixer. Yeah. And every, every episode, things just get worse and worse and worse and worse. So this music dance experience is just as much for him as it is for them. Right. So I think it's like, I need to let my hair down a little bit. I need to let loose. I'm going to take my tie off and I'm going to put on this turtleneck because I like this turtleneck. I look good in this turtleneck. It helps me move. It helps you move, obviously. And he lets go. Yeah. It's a, it's a stretchable fabric. <laughs> it's breathable. But I, I have this, uh, this water cup. It, it's a basically a, a classic clear plastic. Okay. It is the most utilitarian water glass in the world it's okay. just that there it is it's clear there's nothing about it and yet if you push the bottom of the water glass there are flashing lights <laughs> that, that show up <laughs> and make the water turn like red and green and purple this was given to one of my children i don't know why we have this water glass but I was thinking about the music dance experience and in some ways Lumen in that way. It's everything is so clean lines, utilitarian. And Ben Stiller, by the way, like he emphasizes this in his direction so well. Everything is that old, like big, chunky 60s, mm -hmm. 70s. I don't even know. Everything plugs in. It's all so utilitarian. And then it's like Lumen's like, you know, we want everything like this because nobody has a history. We are just living here in the moment. But just every once in a while, let's turn on the light on the bottom of the water glass. 
and let it get a little yeah. funky for no yeah. reason. I love that idea. I just, yeah. I love it. Yeah. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. 
I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Talking about being severed, the show is political. It is fascinating to me. We we talk all the time about work-life separation or integration or the balance between work and your home life. Talk to me a little bit about your thinking about severed and and the ramifications of that or the positives of that or, or why you think that Dan chose that. You know, I get the question a lot of whether or not I would go through the severed procedure. And okay. I enthusiastically say no. No, of course. No, it's yeah. not for me. But there is there's an understanding behind it. Like I get it. There's an empathy. We used that word before. We're people, we're going through so much pain or turmoil, or frustration, or where we need a little relief. And we don't want to take that turmoil into work. Uh, as we see with Mark, you know, he's grieving. So with that, I can understand why people need to just, that we need to just put it away. Myself as an actor and how I pull so much of my own history, my own personal experiences into my work, I wouldn't be able to do that if I was severed. Right. It informs so much of what we do. I don't know of any actor who would be able to do that you know, effectively. Now, if I was an accountant, you know, maybe, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, it's a whole different story. <laughs> the, the, that whole, but that richness, you know, all of that, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, the in-between, the uncertainty, all of that, it, it feeds so much of who we are and, and influences our decisions. Yeah. I wouldn't want to take that away. But I, if there were family members and friends who wanted to do that, you know, of course, I would be supportive of their decisions, but it's not for me. Yeah, there's something that you just said that triggered this mm-hmm. thought, and I'm at least going to share it with you. I don't know that it fully applies, but, you know, in life, kind of what I talked about before, there's always a facade, or, or not always, there's often a facade, or you behave differently around different groups of people. When you're interacting with someone, your objectives may be quite different from that person's objectives, even though you're both pretending at the same time mm-hmm. that you both want the same things. Like, right, this is a part of life, this negotiating moments. And I don't know if it fully relates, but just had a conversation with Jenna Elfman. She talked about she loves the moment on set when someone calls action because it's it's only in that moment, it's the only time she feels like in life where you have a hundred, hundreds of people who are all, everyone mm. agrees on what the objective is mm. until someone says cut. Everyone is working toward getting the shot, about playing your specific role. You know what you're playing. 
the wardrobe people knows the look, the makeup people knows whether there's sweat on the brow or not. Like the lighting, everyone is looking for the greatest angle. And it's all of these people working together Mm -hmm. with no outside objectives happening in that moment. And it's one of the only times in life that everybody is sort of on the same page. And she loves that. And I told her I would never forget it. And I'm thinking about it somehow now, thinking about the severed world and and separating those two things. And I, it seems to me that that's what, you know, the Egan's and Lumen are, are sort of going for anyway. Let's try to create a, a an environment where there is no other history outside of it so that for these eight hours, everyone is working to do just one mm-hmm. thing because they don't know of anything else, mm-hmm. right? Which is such a sick way to achieve that goal. But yeah. it seems to me that there's something in it there, right? Like let's eliminate all history, all opinion, all politics, all religion, all everything, mm-hmm. and just put these people there and have them do a job. That's a very idealistic way of looking at it. <laughs> that I think that would be true if there wasn't the Egan philosophies. You know, there's so many of these images and these sayings. And of course, that's that's where the thread of uh, the book from, from Rickon. Mark's brother-in-law, yes. That's the threat of when Rickon's book shows up. Because now these are new ideas and these are new concepts. And we can't have outside philosophies. Yeah, There's that idealistic idea, but with that's the right. whole, I guess, mind-bending, mind-control, it kind of has a different edge to it. Yeah, for sure. And part of the missive mm-hmm. email that I wrote from 35,000 feet after finishing your show, I I really said this is the new The Office in a way. I mean, obviously, it's totally different. The tone is totally different. The <laughs> style is totally different. It's not. No. It's very funny to me, no. but it's not a comedy at all. But in a weird way, the central character of Michael Scott on The Office, his entire journey was about finding work-life balance. Like that is what it was for him. And that The Office existed as his personal life. He had nothing else outside of it. There's echoes. There's uh, similar things sort of happening as our favorite employees at, at Lumen and Macro Data Refinement begin to search for for other things. I find that interesting. Obviously, I'm not the only one who is uh, enjoying Severance. It's gotten a lot of critical acclaim. How has that impacted you? I've been blown away um, how people have embraced this show. You've been in television, you know, we, there's no specific formula. We never know if a show is going to work or if it's going to be successful. I knew that I wanted to be a part of it because it was different. It's a new idea. There's so many elements to it. There's comedy, there's there's romance, there's thriller, there's psychological elements to it. It's, it's fantastic. But to see how many people have flocked to it and have found themselves implicated in it is really rewarding. And also like the talk pieces that have surfaced, you know, New York Times wrote an article about it, the LA Times, you know, all of these local newspapers have talked about it, blogs have gone in about severance and, and what it has meant to them. And it's a part of a national conversation and even international as well. I didn't realize how 
it impacted me individually until I was in LA at a FYC event. And I remember getting out of the car. We were at Harmony Gold. And I remember getting out of the car. And- By the way, that's for your consideration. That's a for your consideration yes. event. I'm, I'm letting everyone yes, know. Yes. We're talking Emmys here yeah. now, which I promised to get. Tramel won, by the way. So we'll, we'll <laughs> work go. on that. I but love anyway, it. go ahead. Um, so I remember getting out of the car and seeing a group of people behind the gate standing with what looked like to me signs. So immediately in my mind, I'm thinking, this is a protest. They're protesting. Oh gosh, what's going on? <laughs> I was like, that's what my mind went. I was like, okay, all right, it's a revolution. Let's go. Let's raise our voices. Um, yeah. okay. So I walk, I walk into the venue in this like grassy area that has a bar and all these tables, and the people are standing outside the gate and they're screaming our names. They're screaming our names, and immediately I go into shock because I'm thinking, "What is going on? What's happening? What you know?" They're calling my name, and I was like, "Do I owe somebody money? Like, is somebody coming to get me? Like, what is is happening?" Like, and my manager calls me, and he says, "Hey, can you come get me? I'm on the other side of the gate." So I go get him, and I look in his eyes, and he's like, "Tramel, are you okay? You like, you look like you're frazzled." And I was like, "You know, come on in." So I talked to him. I was like, "This is intense." They start screaming my name, and I'm like, "I don't know what to do." And it's like, and he says, "Tramel, they're fans." They're fans of you and they're fans of the show and they want your autograph. And I'm like, wait, what? Right. <laughs> and so totally over my head. I'm like thinking this is the upheaval and you know, social unrest. So uh, I eventually so great. calm down and I go over and I sign and and take pictures behind the gate. And it was wonderful. It was sweet. Everyone was great. And it had nothing to do with them. It was just me, you know, responding to it. But, you know, here I was in this space of enjoying the anonymity. And now you're walking around in the streets of L.A. and people recognize you if they recognize you. Because I'm, I'm a little fortunate here because I can yeah. I have my mask on so you can't see if I have my mustache and my hair is different and my energy as Milchek is different than Tramel. So. I can kind of blend in a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck. Good luck with that. I, although I guess you're a little better than I am. Here's my one piece of advice for you. Cause you're going to get this a lot. Yes. You can thank me later. Okay. When someone comes up to you and says, are you Milchek? Do me a favor. I'm starting a revolution. Just answer sometimes. <laughs> That's all you need to say is sometimes. sometimes. <laughs> because it's the most awkward question in the world. Because I oh, I struggle with this still to this day. It's like, well, yes, I am. <laughs> Hello there. Like it's so so like weird saying no is accurate, but still yeah. kind of rude. So I say, I say sometimes. You talked earlier about studying your future colleagues to try to hone your craft in film and television. I mean, you're working alongside, well, some of my heroes in the business as well, Christopher Walken. Patricia Arquette, John Turturro, just to name three out of a whole slew. How has that been for you working with those people that you used to watch every day to get better? It's humbling. There are moments where I am completely awestruck that this is happening, you know? And what's so beautiful is that each of those persons that you named and everyone else, the part of this cast has been an absolute delight. And they don't have to be, you know? 
They're just kind, genuine, warm, loving people. And I am so grateful to not just be a part of this show, but to also just share space with these beings. Just sit, stand back and sit and watch them play. Some of my favorite scenes on set is when I say nothing and I'm watching them work. It's fantastic. One, that's awesome. And two, that's so great to hear. I know you do a lot of advocacy work. Talk to me a little bit about what the arts has done for you and, and why it's so important for you in the work that you do. The arts saved my life, man. It gave me a voice when I felt I didn't have a voice. It gave me a sense of empathy and compassion for other people's situations. It taught me to listen. The arts taught me to listen to people, how to listen. I dealt with, and I still deal with depression and anxiety and PTSD, and the arts gives me a footing, a grounding, a way to connect with people in a way that I don't think I would have had. I remember when I was doing a Christmas carol at the Clarence Brown Theater, it was the same time as the Sandy Hook shooting. I was playing Bob Cratchit, and I will never forget the scene of Christmas Yet to Come, where Tiny Tim dies. And before that show, I remember looking at CNN and watching this massacre and watching these children being carted away and the absolute anguish of the faces of the teachers and the parents. And I wept in my dressing room for 20 minutes before I did that show. And when we did Christmas Yet to Come, when that scene came up, I kept thinking about those stretchers and those bodies and those families that would never get to hug their children again. And I walked on stage and immediately I was filled with grief and a pain that I wasn't really too familiar with. And in that audience, it was as if we had never experienced this moment in Christmas Carol before. I mean, Christmas Carol is a show that people come with their families and they watch it all the time and they know what's coming. But it was in this moment where I felt that we all breathed together as a community and mourned the loss of those children and those teachers right there on that stage. And no one said a word. No one had to authenticate the moment. It was just right there. And I remember out the corner of my eye, the gentleman playing Scrooge, David Quartermeyer, was weeping in a way I've never seen David Quartermeyer weep. And at the end, he came up to me and he said, Christmas yet to come. And I nodded and he nodded. And we never said anything else about it from there. And it was that moment that I realized the transformative power of theater, of storytelling, of how it connects all of us and unites people of many different generations, social economic statuses, racial identities, sexual identities, orientations. It connects us. And my hope is that with my continuation in the arts, that we will establish a platform for people to have conversations, much like severance and corporations and, and conversations about well-being and mental health and, and gun control and abortion and LGBT rights and, and educational equity, all of that. That's why I do what I do. And I love it. And I, I believe in the power and what it can do. That's awesome. Well, for what it's worth, me too. So thank you for that and that story. 
I wish you nothing but the best in your future in your continuing role on Severance. Your performance is genius. You are a chameleon, but a delightful chameleon that it makes it impossible for me at least to to keep my eyes off you. So I wish you all of the best in your upcoming <laughs> FYC events. Uh, Thank you. It's it's my new favorite show on television, and you are a a huge part of that. So thank you so much. Thank you uh, for joining me, and good luck to you. And uh, I can't wait. I can't wait for new episodes. Yeah, me too. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much, Brian. Thanks, Tramel. Jermel, it was such a pleasure talking to you today, meeting you, and of course, hearing about Severance. Trust me when I say that I will be re-watching this show until season two comes out. I can't get enough, and I swear, I notice something new every single time. Listeners, I cannot recommend Severance to you more, so make sure to check it out if you haven't already. And as always, thank you for joining me today on Off The Beat. I will see you soon for another conversation. Same time, same place, next week. Can't wait. Off The Beat is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Ling Lee. Our producers are Diego Tapia, Liz Hayes, Emily Carr, and Hannah Harris. Our talent producer is Ryan Papa Zachary. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by my great friend, Creed Bratton, and the episode was mixed by Seth Olansky. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. 
Seven questions, limitless answers. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry. The world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 